you go back to 1600s and Renaissance days, architects were the ones designing tools, right? Like we were the software engineer, we were the mathematician, we were the economist, and we were the engineer, like, and the construction manager. You know, like we were all of it. And now the discipline, the industry itself has segmented itself to the point where we are no longer um, as relevant as we could be. And welcome to Inside Out, the show about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. All right, howdy, friend, and thanks for tuning in. You probably saw that this episode runs for over an hour, so you might want to break this up into two or go for a really long walk. Either way, if you're interested at all in architecture, design, urban planning, anything space related, as well as startups, this one is for you. About five or six years ago, I was obsessed with design. I had taken some courses in urban planning in college. I was living in Montreal where every corner you look, there was something ornate or artful in some way. And one of my favorite places to visit was the Canadian Center for Architecture. There was something just so mysterious yet beautiful about how architecture was presented and I really wanted to peek behind the curtain, so to speak. And that I did. So for grad school, I ended up going to the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, or the GSD. And I quickly learned that at the GSD, design really meant architecture. And architecture really meant a place where everybody wore black and was serious all the time. You didn't use color in your work until gradients became a thing. And then you'd get these celebrity architects coming in to tear apart your work. Okay, maybe I'm being a little bit unfair. It wasn't all bad. It, it was definitely a lot more political and traditional of an environment I expected. But that said, Gund Hall, the name of the building, was one of the most inspiring places I'd ever been and got to spend two full years of my life. You know, when you walk inside the studio, it's this five-floor tiered open air environment where um, everywhere you look there's just inspiration overload and all these talented young creative people you know building 3d models making drawings and and basically coming up with solutions in in beautiful ways one of the people that really introduced me to architecture at the gsd was my friend steven sun he is hard to describe because he's literally done like a million things in life. Once you hear him talk, you can probably tell that he's a very high octane individual. And he not only has strong opinions about architecture and the role of designers, but he has no shortage of solutions, including the startup that he's working on. In today's episode, we talk about his training at three of the best architecture schools in the country and how they're all different. What he learned through teaching fourth grade and working in real estate, and the startup he's building now, which is basically a real-life Sims where you can build your own house. Plus, he shares some juicy co-founder drama and why he had to drop out of the top accelerator in the country, Y Combinator. And hey, if you're tapped into the design world at all, or if you just have opinions to share, I'd love to hear them. Steven thinks that today's model of architecture is dead and that it's time to automate away some aspects of design so that architects can unleash their full potential. 
as creative problem solvers. What do you think? I put up a post about this on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane, so let me know what you think in the comments. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen for new stories like this every Tuesday. Without further ado, welcome Stephen Sun. We have so much to go through because you're someone who has literally reinvented yourself career-wise and otherwise like multiple times over your... I actually don't know even how old you are, but you're a millennial, so not that long of a life. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, I am 33. Uh, oh, just, okay. Anyway. Yeah, you're still a millennial, so that's like very impressive. Just to list out a few things, you've gone from architect to middle school teacher to real estate developer uh, to professor. You got your architecture license, and now you're co-founder and CEO of a tech startup. That's pretty amazing. I was actually looking at your LinkedIn today and I literally counted like all your job experiences and you have 22 listed between (laughs) the years 2005 and 2020, which means since college, you've held an average of one and a half jobs every year. Oh man, that sounds like I have no idea what I'm doing with life. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, it sounds like you're always on the move, which is like the Steven that I know. Yeah, I think it's... um like life's I remember talking to a a mentor and he no he was my our parents age and he worked at one of those uh I think HP for 20 years and I was terrified to to hear that I was like how can you stick at a place for 20 years there's so much to explore and uh maybe that's it's a bit of OCD of uh no I sorry ADHD of not knowing what you like or just liking too many things all at once. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, no, if you count uh, Ice Cream Scooper, my very first job in 2004, I did not put that on my LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, but I, I think what I do, what I do appreciate is um, you can learn so much from so many people. So uh, why not expose oneself to all these different professionals in different industries? earlier than than later no i think at i think the first six months at any firm is so exciting because you you absorb you learn the processes and you learn the industry and then you become extremely efficient at doing your job at that firm and then gets very mundane and that's that's basically when i start checking out we're like okay learn what i needed to learn and uh what else do i want to figure out uh, from there I think from every from every job I'll have questions answered but at the end of those six months I'll have new questions that the job won't be able to answer for me yeah I think of life as just a perpetual uh, grad school education <laughs> so to speak what questions did you have after scooping ice cream uh, <laughs> I think it was like actually well to be very uh, serious I think after scooping ice cream I was like, what? now I see the value of customer service. In fact, scooping ice cream is not so much different from cold calls uh, to today. Uh, a stranger comes through the door, you greet them with respect, with kindness, and you try to convince them to not just sample everything, but actually buy something, <laughs> which my high school friends were terrible at. They would just come in and and uh, leech you for all the ice cream and then leave. But yeah, I think what the question I had after scooping ice cream was, was is architecture right for me? 
Like I, I, I discovered architecture in sophomore year of high school and was, was interested in seeing what that would play out like in the professional setting. What was your, like the first moment you were interested in architecture or was that something that you kind of grew up absorbing? So it was freshman year of high school and uh, I went to a, so a bit of a background. I went to a small private French middle school. So my class size was, uh, I think they're like 13 or 15. And to my parents' uh, deep, deepest regrets, I did not get into any of their private high schools that I wanted to go to. So they sent me to Mountain View Public High School, which I'm super proud of. In October 2001, uh, on the PA announcement, they, they announced the need for someone who could design, build, and also be artistic all at the same time for a high school float because it was homecoming. And I was like, I have no idea what homecoming is, but I love Legos. I love drawing and why, why the heck not? And we designed and built a, a float for San Francisco. Like well, the theme was city nights. So we, we built, uh, we, yeah, we built the float. And that was probably the most fun I've ever had in my life back then. It was like real life Legos with real life people and a, a huge audience because it was not only the high school, but it just went down uh, Los Altos uh, kind of downtown area. So you had neighbors coming out, you had everything. So it was very much a cultural, a mini cultural event. And so I think that's when I went to my college or the counselor was like, what can I do in real life that looks like this? And um, she said, well, there's engineering. And I said, no, because my dad's an engineer. And then she's like, well, then you should try architecture. And I was like, what's that? And um, yeah, and then sophomore year of high school, uh, looked up architecture summer camp because that's what I did. So like, if, if you're ever interested in anything, you just go, yeah, it's summer camp afterwards. And um, that's what led me to University of Oregon. They had one of those uh, immersion programs, kind of like career discovery or, or whatever. You know, all, all these schools have them now. And got exposed to studio culture. And that was basically when I fell in love with architecture. I wish I had gone to a, a software boot camp though, <laughs> looking back. <laughs> yeah, in this economy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow, like studio, architecture studio pedagogy and culture is so fascinating. And I wasn't really exposed to that until grad school. I mean, I kind of saw in college, like I'd, I had a few architecture friends who, you know, would crawl out of the architecture building at like 3 a.m. <laughs> so that's yeah. like that's the <laughs> yeah. extent I got. Um, yeah. But you happened to attend three different architecture schools, right? Can you talk a bit about you know, where you went to school and what the culture was like? Yeah, so straight out of high school, I uh, went to Carnegie Mellon uh, University out in Pittsburgh, uh, their school of architecture. And it was, at the time, it was, I thought it was terrible. It was very, very old school. It was very, very conservative. I didn't jive too well with both the faculty, the pedagogy, and the um, even even the even just the environment in many ways. And uh, one of my professors at CMU um, noticed how unhappy I was because I was very vocal about my unhappiness and dissatisfaction with the program. Um, and I'm I think this you. no no it's, it was actually <laughs> I, I regret this decision because it was oh. uh, it was pretty bad. So you know in studio they have these final reviews where 
like the whole class attends and you have critics. And so instead of presenting my project, I kind of gave a manifesto about like how, how Carnegie Mellon should change and why, why this program is bad and why architecture is bad. And uh, that promptly got me uh, a lot of, uh, well, let's just say my, my instructor was very unhappy with me. But then another instructor was like, this kid's funny. I like him. You should go to SciArc because she went to SciArc. And I was like, what's SciArc? Uh, turns out it was a place for rebels and a place for uh, kind of uh, unorthodox outliers of thinkers and whatnot in LA. And so that summer, a bunch of my high school buddies and I, we went down to LA, saw SciArc, and I think I would say fell in love for the second time. And uh, was like, that is the only place I would ever call magical. Um, and and uh, yeah, I vividly remember just stepping into that building. And the first thought was, how do I come here? And uh, the irony, though, is after leaving Carnegie Mellon, which I thought was horrible, and after joining SARC, which I thought was the best place on earth, I then realized how amazing Carnegie Mellon was. It, was, it took six months of SARC for me to realize, oh, wait a second. They are, they're amazing in so, so many ways. But I, I understood the value of Carnegie Mellon's education. And that realization of how CMU is so, I don't want to use the word conservative. I still haven't found the right term, maybe like fundamentalist. You know, they're so, they're so fundamental in so many ways. I mean, it's, I left CMU in 2007, basically. So it's been 13 years. Even to this day, I still reflect on some of the things that they taught us especially with other CMU uh, alumni from different generations and from different disciplines. One of my first internships with uh, Daniel Garber, he was a CMU alumni, and that's the only reason he hired me because we were in the Bay Area. And for some reason, the head of the school told Dan about me. And it's like, hey, Laura said you're great, so you're hired. I was like, wonderful. And two months into the internship, uh, Dan had a big client presentation and didn't like the SketchUp renderings that I was doing at the time. So he decided to hand draw. And when he drew the building, I was like, how are you drawing the exact same way as I am? Because Dan's older than me. He's like, he, he was 40 at the time. I was, I don't know, uh, 18, 19 or so. And he said, well, I had... Uh, Doug Cooper as a professor. I'm like, how is that possible? He's my professor. And it was crazy to think that even after two decades, there's a specific aesthetic style as well as way of thinking about buildings and representation that is shared between C CMU alumni. And Doug Cooper is still teaching at CMU. It is insane. No way. And yeah, and I, uh, you know, fast forward like 10 years, I was in Texas uh, randomly, uh, Austin, and I saw this random girl wearing a CMU alumni at an architecture office, so it wasn't that random. And I was like, hey, did you have Doug Cooper? And she's like, how do you know Doug Cooper? And, <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's like, it's one of those things that is just, it's, it's so fundamental and so inherent to CMU education. Um, and and yeah, I, I'm very, very happy with CMU wow. um, and with SciArc. And yeah, and the last school is obviously uh, the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, which is where we met. And uh, 
that's a whole that's a whole podcast in, in and of itself too. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to get a little bit of your experience and perspective on GSD, but maybe you can say a little bit about how like in architecture school culture it's very much this like triangular shape of like <laughs> you have this one design luminary who passes on a certain like design philosophy if you could call it that onto his or her but usually his <laughs> luminaries yeah. who then spread that gospel yeah yeah i i love the terminologies that you're using uh, i almost call like the graduate students at gsd disciples right and then you have uh, multiple uh, jesuses that you decide to follow so to speak with option studios to answer your question architectural pedagogy both for historical and current reasons has always been led by these star architects you know, so you have this uh, someone like zaha zaha hadid uh, or frank gary or rem kuhas whoever these are just iconic, like the Brad Pitts of architecture or the Gwyneth Paltrow's of architecture. And they follow, students will go to certain schools specifically because that school was able to recruit them to teach uh, a studio, which is, think of it as just a small project-based classroom learning with 10 to 15 students and a quote-unquote master, which the students will follow digest their philosophy and essentially emulate their way of design and then to to learn more about how they see the world how the the master sees the world no without being too critical it, it just it is what it is now there are multiple ways to teach design what i think is very interesting about cmu um, is that i don't think it's driven by a star architecture model they really focus on what is not sexy, what is not starry. You know, it's getting the basics so, so right is so, so important. Again, not even associated with architecture, just a lot of people from CMU are so proud to be extremely good at what they do and aren't really famous. They just want to be good, you know, whereas I think uh, a school like Cyrk, you go to Cyrk, because you want to be different, you want to be novel, and you want to, you know, be in the magazines and then be part of these superstar studios. Um, and, and yeah, you know, in places like GSD as well, a lot of my peers and colleagues went to GSD so they can study with specific people like, in, like Inyaki, uh, like Wuhos, like, uh, like all, all, all the famous names. What drew you to the GSD? <laughs> okay, I went to the GSD for one very simple reason. If you're not an architect, uh, you would never know what SARC is or what it represents. And I was tired of getting asked the question, is SARC USC extension? It's like, no, 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 SARC is it's a good school and our ideas are valid. It's one of those, it's also one of those schools that if you come from SARC, you're not taken seriously pretty much ever uh, because we're known for being uh, too radical or too creative. Think of it as like, you know, hippie activists of architecture at the time. I was younger at the time and that's what I wanted, but then realized the reality of how ideas are treated, of how things are done. It's like needed some, some more heavyweight. So I basically went to GSD for its signaling power of like, hey, I want to be taken seriously. Um, but to go a bit deeper into that, when my 
friends and colleagues graduated from SARC, it was 2010, right when the recession from the, the housing crisis and credit crisis hit and everyone was out of a job. Um, and I was, that was a moment in my personal professional growth where I didn't understand why we, all of us, uh, us as an architects, we all worked so, so, so hard and we are all very, very capable and very smart, but we're faced with absolutely, uh, you know, a devastating kind of economic status. And I wanted to understand why, you know, and this is, I wanted to understand like, why did that happen? Why did architects specifically get it so, so bad? And um, my, you know, my big question at that time was, they call it the housing crisis. Architects provide housing. What, like, what was our role in this? And, um, and to this day, a lot of architects will argue that has nothing to do with architecture. Um, when I would actually say it, it has everything to do with architecture. Can you say more about that? I think if, if anyone hasn't yet already, uh, go just Google this American life and, uh, and search big pool of money and then watch all of those wonderful uh, drama documentaries about the financial crisis. None of it is architectural, right? It's, it's all talking about money markets, capitalism, investment funds, and how, yeah, just how finance works. And, you know, there was a time in the early 20th century, so like 1940s, 1950s, where architects had so much agency, even more so than lawyers in the built environment. They understood how spatial design impacted policy, impacted urbanism, and impacted finance. You know, like Portman uh, from Atlanta, one of the most influential architects at, at his time, and built just ridiculous buildings. Like, like you know, Corbusier, uh, who's again, like one of these fathers of modernism, like he built some big stuff, but if you compare it to Portman, it's like nothing to, it's, it's insane. And you don't see that anymore because architects no longer understood the impact of their work in terms of financial, in terms of policy, and in terms of pretty much like um, any other, other disciplines associated with architecture. Um, and so housing crisis, yeah, in, in many ways it's not architectural, but it, is, it, it was physical buildings used as a financial instrument and because we as architects disassociated ourselves with finance, we let so much of our agency go. And you would, uh, you know, I would even argue we as architects have shed away from so much risk from the financial sector, from software, from construction. Like, you know, we, we've absolved ourselves of all this risk and responsibility. And so it's very natural that we lack agency. Uh, I mean, just this year, a bunch of very big architecture firms uh, wrote uh, an open letter to Autodesk complaining that the tools that they provided architects are crappy. And I'm like, wow, so not only are we unable to manage construction sites, not only are we able to manage firms um, and participate in the global economy, we've completely lost control over the very tools that we use to design buildings. I mean, you go back to 1600s and Renaissance days, 
architects were the ones designing tools, right? Like we were the software engineer, we were the mathematician, we were the 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 economist, and we were the engineer, like and the construction manager. You know, like we were all of it. And now the discipline, the industry itself has segmented itself to the point where we are no longer um, as relevant as we could be. Ugh, that, what a heavy topic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is so cool. Yeah. I, I don't think we ever talked about this in so much depth and the history is really interesting too. Given this context of architects having lost a lot of agency and these other disciplines and you know the job market being tough and our the, the tools of the trade are also like incompetent. Um, like given yeah. all, all the negatives, like why do you still love architecture or what do you love about architecture? I, I think at the end of the day, um, I, I love solving problems. I love helping people and people spend a lot of time, if not all of their time in the built environment and being able to contribute to that is, is a wonderful thing. No, you can, I think uh, software engineers can argue the same thing of like a, the digital space is, is a space where we spend all our time and in, in to create delightful experiences for people to create uh, safe and pleasant experiences that solves problems is something exciting. Even after all this time going, going across uh, learning about finance, learning about real estate, learning about software and et cetera. Uh, like yesterday, sitting down with a client's problem and drawing something out and solving it and to hear, oh my God, this is exactly what I want. It is an enormously gratifying feeling that I, I love. And I, I think it just goes to my, you know, my personality of I just love spaces and I love three-dimensional things. Anyone who has moved like apartments or houses with me knows that like I'm the one to fit all the furniture in the U-Haul perfectly because that's just who I am. Like I can just visualize spaces well, 3D Tetrising. Uh, and it was a matter of how do I make money using that skill, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, next time we move, I'm getting you to come over to Boston. <laughs> that would be a love, I would love to do that. I Yeah, it's good exercise for me too, so. <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you mentioned something just now, which was, you know, you literally took out a pen and like drew something for this client, right? I was actually talking to a friend the other day and we were talking about how I mentioned the term visual literacy, which is like such a given at a place like the GSD or an archi architectural school yeah. where you're communicating through drawings, like through 2D drawings or 3D models um, and these lines and weights and uh, all these images mean something very specific. However, that is not the way most of us grew up or were educated because most of K-12 education is through written word and numeracy, right? So other um, yeah. other symbols, other hieroglyphs and, and not necessarily drawings. Do you feel like you maybe like wield this like secret power that other people don't quite have or? Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't call it a secret power. I just, I think uh, people always have natural talents that they gravitate to. Um, you know, I, from a very, very, very early age, I think um, I, I, I some, we have pictures of this somewhere, but uh, when I was two or three, I just started taking 
sofa cushions and building like mazes, like big mazes, like the entire living room would just be covered with fine, uh, covered with furniture and, and cloth and whatever, whatever I could use to create spaces, you know, it's just, that was just, that was just me. But then you also have uh, people like my cousin who is at the age of two, just went on the piano and actually no, articulately started playing notes that would sound good. You put me in a piano. You put me in a piano right now to, to this day. That's, no, you wouldn't want me there. Um, so, yeah, but I think it's important, though, that in especially earlier education, one gets exposed to all forms of com uh, of communication um, and, and not just languages uh, in the traditional sense of that word, but more of what you said, like, you no, know, there's the visual literacy, there's musical literacy, physical literacy, like, you no, know, knowing how the body moves and how you can control your body um, through sports, through martial arts and whatever. And then even software literacy, you know, there's so many, so many ways to get exposed to so many things. And the earlier it is, the easier it is to both find out what one truly loves and what one kind of fits into. And I was, you know, enormously privileged with my parents who, who yeah, gave me those, all those platforms, right? I have so much to be grateful and to be thankful for. And I think educational policy too, like the emphasis of STEM and math um, and, and, you know, modernization, that this all goes back to the Cold War era of, okay, we need to beat the Soviets at, you know, uh, they they launched Sputnik. We need to beat them to the moon. Let's throw all of these resources uh, into the math and engineering world, and the humanities and the arts were kind of left aside. It's it's sad to think about, but the the world of finance, the world of policy, and and it, it basically you no know, interjects in every every aspect of our life, both architecture and education and the spaces that we live in. You know, it's a giant ecosystem. Any profession needs to understand their place in the ecosystem of trades, of disciplines, and of capitalism. I mean, your background is in urban landscape ecology, right? So this is this sounds right up your alley, Jane. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Although, I, ironically, I, I work in software these days and I don't <laughs> yeah. utilize any of those that content, yeah. but you know, here yeah. we are. It's interesting too, because like even while you were at the GSD, you took classes at the education school, at the Kennedy School. You know, we connected over our mutual love of education, you know, K-12 yeah. education. And um, at one point, you probably, you know, still have this in, in your back pocket somewhere, but um, you have all of these thoughts and designs around K-12 schools. Um, classroom design, school designs, different school models, and you took two different classes, one at the GSD, one at the ed school. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted oh, to, um, yeah, I wanted to see if you want, you could share your experience from those two classes. We don't have to get into the emotional details if you don't want to, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I wanted to kind of hear about that and how you, how you got into this world of education. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll share some emotion because it's always uh, more dramatic and more fun, uh, yes. including some of those. Um, but I think my interest in education really started in 2010 when I went to Haiti after the earthquake and was like, okay, uh, graduated from Syriac Architecture School. Let's see what I can do with these skills. The, the first thing I did there was you know, designing schools and designing, yes, yeah, just designing schools and spaces for 
for people. Uh, and we partnered with a lot of local organizations and two of them, uh, their names were uh, uh, Julian and Irina. They basically told me straight up like, Steven, that's great that you can design all these things, but we don't want you to design stuff for us. We just want you to teach us stuff so that we can design. It's a very simple and very silly thing to say. And, but it was just so, so true. I was like, yeah, what am I doing here? Teaching them everything I knew at the time and then designing spaces really helped me connect with how badly I wanted to teach and how, how wonderful it was. Immediately, and after I came back from uh, the Haiti trip, uh, I joined an architecture firm that specialized in school design. So I, I was always interested in, I still am interested in teaching and in educational spaces. And so fast forward to GSD or Harvard, I took a class called Designing Democratic Schools for Learning at the uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education with Dr. Linda Nathan. It was, oh my God, it was just, where in the world would you be able to sit in a classroom with a former founder of a school and all these superintendents, all these teachers, all these principals who intend to go out and design schools from, from scratch, right? And to pick their brains, to understand the, the pain points, to understand the context. And yeah, like if you're in the real world today, if you want to get a meeting with the superintendent, you have to wait, you know, weeks, if not months for five minutes. Here, you can just turn left, ask a question, turn right, ask a question. It was amazing. It's just, it's just, it's just amazing. And then I ended up uh, teach, uh, helping teach that class for, for two years as a, as a teaching fellow. And it's, it remains to be one of the most joyful experiences uh, at my time at, at GSD. Now, this, the class at GSD around education was, I, I forgot the title of the, of the class because it just wasn't important. Um, and I won't name the, the professor either. She was actually an architect I deeply admired undergrad and remains to be very famous and just, it's just a superstar. She's a superstar. These are the people that Harvard attracts. And these are the people that Harvard students want, want to learn from. And out of curiosity, it's like, well, let's see how the design school teaches this. And the first thing they said uh, was, we are not going to think about everything that the School of Education thinks about, uh, which is kind of ironic. It's like, wait, wait, wait. So I, I think the purpose of a school is to serve students, you know, and maybe the, the state and maybe uh, federal policy. Uh, and here we are as architects throwing all of that out. And I remember this is like hour one of day one of that, of that studio. And I mentioned, you know, maybe we should talk to the, you know, the folks over at the, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Maybe they know something about education. And uh, the response was, oh, we don't do that here. And I think that's, that, is, that is where, um, well, uh, that's probably the one and only F that I got in, in studio because, oh man, we basically started butting heads on every single thing. But I think it goes to say in our earlier comment, like why did architects get, get screwed so badly in 2008? Why have we lost agency? Uh, I think that kind of attitude of disregarding reality in many ways is, is, is self-deserved, right? No, when it comes to education, we, we as architects are, not, are never going to get hired by another architect to design a school. We'll always be hired by uh, you know, a school district or, or someone in the educational policy world to do something.
Well, after the GSD, you kind of did a 180, right? And you went and worked in a school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, so Dr. Nathan from the School of Education, uh, she said this to me after working with her for for two years. It was right around the time I was going to graduate, and she said, "Stephen, you're an amazing designer, and you're a great architect, but you have no business ever designing a school unless you've taught in one." And I arrogantly said, "Oh, well, how hard can that be?" And so she gave me a job、oh, as as an elementary school teaching assistant slash homeroom teacher. And aside from founding a tech a, a company, it is the hardest thing in the world to do. Like I cannot I cannot stress how much just how hard that was. I, I've always respected teachers, but now I respect them far far more. <laughs> It's just like man. Yeah, I still can't a, believe that you went in cold to a fourth grade classroom and like stuck around in that job for a year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's.、Um, I, I remember Christmas、uh, around winter break.、Uh, well, after right after winter break, we came back to the classroom and all the kids were like, "Wait, how come you're still here? Because these these students were just had the expectation that teachers." The teacher turnaround time、uh, is like two to three times a year. You know, they never had teachers that stuck around so so long.、Whoa. And、uh, yeah, I have to say that the the school that、uh, Dr. Nathan threw me in was like triple jeopardy. It was a charter urban turnaround school. So ch- like charter being not exactly part of the district, turnaround meaning it was failing, did not meet any state standards, so they were going to close it, and then、uh, urban. Being uh, uh, lower on the economic and social status, so very difficult environment. I, w- I sometimes I would spend recess. I would take my architecture toolkits of you know exacto blades and hot glue guns and stuff to fix students' glasses、um, because they can't see. How can you teach if they can't see?、Um, so yeah, it was a it was it was, again it was very very hard. Doctor Nathan was absolutely right. Like architects cannot design schools unless they taught in one. I remember working with architects through Rim to Learn, architects who weren't even educated at GSD or any fancy school, and they had no idea what was going on in classrooms today, and didn't really have access to teachers or students to really figure out what they needed. And so, one of the ways that Rim to Learn, the company I co-founded, tried to bridge that gap. Was to run these design competitions for teachers to submit、yeah. ideas for how they would hack together their classroom spaces to meet、uh, student needs, and we had architects participate in funding and judging these competitions. And through that, they got to see some photos and videos of like, wow, like this is what teachers are doing. They're literally like, you know, using like buckets and cushions to create soft seating and and little hacks、yeah. like that. The worlds are so disparate. Yeah, and I think、uh, architects have such a great、uh, have such a potential role in in connecting、uh, different worlds, right? Not just beyond just education, you know. From again, like from the policy to software to、uh, music, to, it, you know. As everyone gets more and more specialized, we also get more and more segregated and within our own disciplines. And I think connecting everyone together is and, and sharing more mutual understandings of. Disciplines and, and and backgrounds is is something very necessary, especially in two thousand twenty. You know. Yeah, for sure. 
Do you want to share anything about the um, like the architecture and or like real estate roles you had after after that gig? Uh, yeah. Wow, this is this is recent, and I still can't quite remember. Um, basically, at GSD, I took a class called real estate and finance. Uh, I just knew that when you talk about money and buildings, it ultimately leads to real estate. And at the time I had no idea about, about anything. Uh, that class also kicked my butt in, in so many ways. Uh, I remember the midterm, the hardest midterm I've ever taken in my life. When they passed, uh, passed back the test results, uh, I got an 88 and I was like, oh, sweet, I passed. And then the teaching fellow leaned in, it's like, Steven, it's out of 200. I'm like, no. And, and, but I think, you know, what, what the, the key takeaway from that class was, you know, every single building is a financial instrument, like every single one. Uh, the building we live in right now, it is generating income. No, the, the rent that we pay, it goes somewhere. Who does it go to? you know and what does that money do afterwards how does that money get deployed and and what was amazing about that class it, it began to it built the vocabulary and the and the framework to understand how buildings operated in a very abstract financial fashion as part of nope the global ecosystem of money because it was designed to teach real estate at the corporate level not the kind of like a small infill development mom and pops developer yeah, and so I think based on the you know, Professor Pizer's connections, um, I got a quick internship slash gig with this developer in, in LA. Again, it just blew me away of how, how a real estate developer would design a building versus how an architect would design a building. Just completely different. Yeah, it was night and day, the speed, the emphasis, the values, not to say one's bad and one's, one's good. It's just, it was just different. And being to understand how someone else thinks, just like how a teacher would think or how a, a school principal would think. Uh, as an architect, we owe it to society and to ourselves to, to know what we are designing for, right? When I was in LA working with, uh, his name was uh, Martin Slusser. Um, he was, yeah, it, it was amazing. We would drive, we would spend all our times in the car, just driving to different sites and then we get to a site, he would ask me to design a building in five minutes, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like I, I am fast with Rhino, but not that fast. Um, and, um, but I think that's, that is the speed and the attitude and the way of thinking about buildings from a development standpoint. And it was, it was just fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. Does any of that tie into the work you're doing now? Yes, yes, I think. Maybe can, uh, yeah, maybe we can transition yeah. into talking about Dig, your latest venture, and how it uh, all got started. Uh, yes, absolutely. The so Dig stands for Development Integration Group. We wanted this company not to be assigned to any name per se, but really, it's no, it's a group of people, individuals, software engineers, enthusiasts, architects, all, all who sharing the belief that you know, the design of a building should be easy, democratized, and accessible, right? And DIG, I think, is the solution to the problem that I discovered after graduating from SIARC. You know, problem being, architects are, have no agency for all so many reasons. And then how do we as architects contribute to the built environment 
in a very fast-paced, in a very democratic, in a very sustainable way. The, the investor pitch, right, is like we are building the digital architect, which with software, we can design any building to be compliant, to be profitable, and to be pleasant. Uh, I always use this word, delightful. Anyone For anyone who's played the game Sims, you know, there's so much delight in that game of curating a space, curating lifestyles and you know, um, placing furniture and whatnot. And if that, if that solution, if the abstract solution that one creates in Sims can be directly translated into a real building, how cool would that be? Wow. Yeah. So you're building the real life sim. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's a better way. Like we should just call it the real, the real life sims. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That's so cool. Wait. So like practically, how does it work and who is it for? To, to build any building, there's, there's only really two constraints is how much money do you have to build this? And what are the, the, the building and zoning regulations around what you can build? So, you know, the first step is to essentially digitize the municipal uh, codes for every single city and for every single zone. So whenever you enter an address, you'll be able to clearly understand all the, all the rule sets around the building. But I think this is where learning from video games is, is very, very critical. As a user of a video game or as a player, uh, you don't need to be told what the rules are you know as you play the game you'll just naturally understand like no one plays a game by reading a, a, a 50 page manual like that that's just no like you you lose interest um, immediately and so the way we want to build this product is that homeowners eventually would be able to very simply enter an address enter what they want out of this project like they're the ones who know what they want and then engage the, the platform to create the building, right? Um, and we as architects uh, and software engineers define the constraints, the context, and, and the rules around that. So whatever they're able to create is, is compliant. The, the second part of your question, like who is it for? I think the end vision of this is really any home, like I, I just imagine my, my grandma, you know, Maybe not my grandma, but uh, I, we have clients who are grandmas that have tremendous artistic capabilities. You know, they, they've drawn things down, they have references, they have everything, they've measured things out, right? It would be so cool if they can just execute their idea without the need to hire an architect and spend thousands and thousands of dollars dealing with all this, uh, this uh, bureaucraticness uh, <laughs> of, the, of the built industry. But like immediately right now, the, the consumers that we've targeted are ADU developers, so accessory dwelling units. Think of them as mini house builders, just because they're very, very low hanging fruit of people who understand the industry, who need fast results and uh, are very repeatable in terms of consumer types. And when you say mini house builder, you mean like builders of mini houses and not like yeah, yeah. Elf, elf shaped people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, so like uh, a lot of terminal, like there, you've heard maybe like granny flats or second dwelling units or in-law units, like uh, things that are anywhere from 400 square feet to 1200 square feet uh, in meters. That's like uh, 100 square meters to uh, okay never mind I can't do the con metric conversion <laughs> never do math on the podcast we'll right? yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah 
So at one point you guys caught the attention of Y Combinator and you, uh, you guys went through with the YC program, but you actually left partway through. Can you share uh, more about that story? Yeah, so uh, it was August, 2019, and I was interviewing uh, general contractors to, to essentially develop a project that I was developing as a, as a real estate person. And this guy, I'll just call him RJ. He was extremely smart and his bid came in very low and it was, but it was realistic enough for me to be intrigued. And so in talking to him, um, I found out that he had a PhD from Stanford around uh, AI. And I naturally asked him, what was he doing in construction? And he shared with me that he was, um, no, he started a, a construction startup around AI. And it was like, it was super fascinating to me because I had, I think I, we were both approaching the problem from uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. And as we talked more and as we collaborated more, uh, we decided to join forces and to apply to uh, a bunch of accelerators, uh, YC being one of them. It, it was fun. We, we got into YC. It was a dream come true for him. I had no idea about uh, YC. Well, actually, I, I did know about YC because uh, the house where I grew up in, in Mountain View is literally down the street, walking distance from YC. Wow. And whenever I bike to bike to school, I would bike past YC. I just saw this big Y. I'm like, why is this here? You know, <laughs> who, who knew? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, the, the stories of growing up in Mountain View. So we joined YC, and it was just the it was just an amazing group of people. Uh, the founders there were. Um, I think it was a community that I had always looked for, um, but never quite found. And uh, this was the the ambition, the the talent, the intelligence, and just the grit. Like the stories were just so fascinating, uh, talking to everyone. As we progressed into the program, my ex-co-founder RJ's behavior started changing, and uh, a bunch of red flags started to really pop up. No, I, I think I self-deluded myself. With, the, with my wishful thinking and overly optimistic attitude. I was like, oh, no, it's okay. It's just, uh, he's done this before. You know, he's in the tech world. He understands the space better than I do. So I'll just leave it to him. And it wasn't until I was talking to my, uh, my very good friend, Palak, who's now my current co-founder about RJ, that she said, Stephen, you have no idea what you're getting into. You need to get out of your relationship with RJ as quickly as possible. And I was like, okay, well, uh, I, I, I made a phone call, one that I should have done months ago to RJ's ex-co-founder from his old company, who he turns out to be, um, to have also gone to Mountain View High School. So we had the same English teacher. Uh, and, um, wow, small world. Yeah, it is a small, it is a super small world. Uh, his name is Rob, uh, Robert. And when I was talking to Rob, um, he was extremely nice, extremely professional. And I kept on pushing him to tell me what I wanted to, what I wanted to know. It's like, is, is RJ someone I should be concerned about? And at the end of the call, Rob basically said, uh, Stephen, if you want to protect your reputation and your integrity, you should definitely not have anything to do with, with this guy. Wow. And at the end, um, when I, when I, oh, this is hard. When I was, talking to RJ with this new perspective, it became very clear that he wanted to essentially run away with the money um, from the investors, uh, which put 
me in a very, very bad spot, obviously. And so that's ultimately why uh, I was a CEO back then, but I withdrew uh, DIG from YC and from Boost, the other accelerator that we got into. And by withdrawing, there was no money coming in. And with no money, there was no money to run away from or run away with. Then ensued a, a short but difficult legal battle of what was going to happen next. And ultimately, RJ bought out my share in a newly formed company uh, at the time. And we, we, we went our separate ways. Looking in hindsight, that was probably the best experience uh, one can have in the startup. All the bad things that, have, that could possibly happen with basically no consequence, right? There was, there was no financial damage. There was no uh, loss of IP. And there was no, um, no one really got hurt too, too far. It was all just kind of emotional pain. No, like, yeah, like the, the company was so basically non-existent because it was the earliest, earliest stages. So um, it was a very good experience and a very, very good lesson to, to have learned. Wow. Co-founder drama is so yes. <laughs> life consuming <Yeah. laughs> or can be. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah, luckily you guys, you were able to figure it out so that to protect the company. Um, but how, how did you deal with everything emotionally and like do you feel like you're recovered from that are you still processing oh yeah yeah uh, uh fresher dramas have have replaced the the, the rj drama <laughs> yeah, the, That's always... life. <laughs> yeah yeah no i think um um it's never a good idea to get hung up on any one thing i think i always talk about startup as like you're trying to solve a rubik's cube except the cube is changing as you're trying to solve it. It's getting bigger, it's getting more complex. And, and like in all of a sudden you, you lose, you, lose uh, you, you become colorblind halfway through, you know? And, um, <laughs> and, but I think that's the, one of the reasons I ultimately decided to do a startup is I've never found a working environment that would be able to push me and challenge me the way I wanted to. There were, there were always ceilings, you know, glass or concrete uh, for whatever reasons. And no, I think I really wanted ownership of my own destiny and gratification and fulfillment, you know, and I could only find that by doing something completely on my own. And yeah, and with that comes every day, just new, new problems and new challenges. Beware what one wishes for, right? I, I really wanted this going in. Now I do not. I, I envy those with the nine to five job with weekends. Um, but, but in the end, it's uh, like we, everyone at DIG, we, we, we truly do believe in this vision of democratizing design. I mean, that's why I wanted to be a, an architect, you know, to, to deliver delightful spatial experiences for everyone. And that's what keeps me going ultimately. And just to clarify, your mission isn't to take away the role of the architects or take away design jobs per se, but is to maybe evolve the role of the architect in this new digital world? Yeah, it depends on how cynical I'm feeling when answering that question. <laughs> um, I think this startup, if we were to succeed, will, will, will truly force architects to, to really change how we operate and how we think about the world, starting from the educational architecture schools, places like SciArc, GSD, and hopefully not Carnegie Mellon, because Carnegie Mellon should just say like they are. If I'm being super cynical, 
I would say, yeah, DIG has the potential of replacing 90% of what, arch what an architect does. And quite frankly, that should be the case. The industry, professionally speaking, is just so inefficient. The softwares that we use, the, the way we design, and there's no reason why we shouldn't do that. Because if we make everyone far more efficient, as in it's automated, then that allows architects to do what they're truly good at, which is translating values and ideals of a community into spatial policy that contributes to the long-term vision of, of a city, of a space and, and whatnot. That's something software cannot do. Ultimately, this, this would change the role of the architect in the 21st century. You know, when, when I was in school in undergrad, 2005, in, in history and digital technology, everything that we were taught at the time was the profession is in crisis. You know, I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> like, like, you know, and looking back now, it's like, I see what that, like, I, I get it now. Like, I know why, why we're in crisis. It, it's like, no, the house is on fire. Everyone's saying is the house is on fire. No one's like looking for water. You know, they're just saying, oh, the house is on fire because of this reason or because of that reason. And let's understand the historical significance or let's argue about the color of this fire. It's like, no, man, let's go out and find some water to, to solve the solution, um, solve this problem. Again, I alluded to this before. The reason why we were in that position in the first place is we've lost touch with reality. Reality in the very immediate sense of finance, of real estate, and of policy. To get back into touch with those worlds is, is not that complicated. It's, it's really not. You just go talk to a banker. No, go talk to, like, they're, they're, yeah, go talk to a software engineer. Go talk to, go to the city and talk to the people who are writing, the planners, and, under, and truly, truly understand how they think about it. And once you do that, uh, you realize, wait, all of this is actionable and automatable with software. And I mean, that, that's what DIG is ultimately doing. You know, we're, we're just trying to bridge all of these different disciplines using software. And by doing that, it restores agency to, to architects. You know, there's, there's, that, there's that amazing, amazing gif of like an architect telling uh, a drafter to like move a toilet five pixels over and then to like move it back five pixels over. And just like, it just goes back and forth and every architect will relate to that. I think we all went to architecture school to, to not be pushing pixels around, right? There, there are bigger things that we can contribute to society and by automating away the mundane allows us to do that. Yeah. And no more pushing toilets around. Sounds like, you know, a lot of the like regulatory pieces and the mon more mundane pieces can be taken care of by software and technology. Right. Yeah, it's one compelling response for sure. This was a really cool foray into your mind and how you think. Um, I have one last question that's more of a personal curiosity on, on how you think and make, make decisions. It's clear to me from this conversation and just knowing you that uh, you know, when you decide to jump into something or quit something, like you're able to just rip off the bandaid right away. Um, that's something that I personally struggle with is like, I find it hard to like, let things go. Maybe you can share like how, what's your kind of decision-making framework? It's funny you say that. And, and it's funny you perceive me that way. Uh, Cause I don't see myself that way anymore, especially around topics relating to humans. It's hard for me to rip off the bandaid with uh, clients 
and especially with um, uh, with employees, I think giving oneself permission to make mistakes. I forgot who who told this to me or, or who said this in the podcast, but there are like three things you want to check: is will I go to jail? Will someone get hurt? And will this break the law? If it's no to all those three things, just do it. And it, and if it's if it turns out poorly, it's okay, because um, that that's what life is and uh, oh i remember this is a dr randy pausch uh from carnegie mellon who said this oh. right and uh, he he had this very famous saying of you know experience is what you get when you didn't get what you want and uh, so if you want to get experience just keep on making mistakes and continuously make mistakes and i think architectural education and design education is part of that you know we're given a blank sheet of paper, there's always this hesitancy to make the first move and to acknowledge that the first move will most likely be a mistake and to be very, very okay with that because it's part of the process. So yeah, I think my advice to, you know, I wouldn't say I'm in a position to give advice to you of, of all people uh, or to any like aspiring founders is to just start, like start with anything, just start doing, start making. It can be so paralyzing to just think about a problem rather than just acting upon it, like write code, talk to clients, talk to consumers and, and do things as always do. It's funny. We talked about Doug Cooper in the beginning. There's this very big distinction of like, no, there's the thinker and then there's the doer. And what is drawing? It's like, no, drawing is thinking by drawing, like by putting pen to paper and actively moving your hand, you're also thinking it's not two separate things. Right. And I think in his classes, when we drew things, it was a requirement that your hand never stops. Keep pouring out what you're mentally thinking about. I think he, that actually has, a, that has had a big impact on how I work, and how I think, and how I do, ultimately. Not to distinguish between those three, three verbs. Yeah. Make mistakes. Mistakes are good. Yeah. Make mistakes. Wait, who says that? Uh, Miss Fizzle says that too, right? Oh, Magic, Magic School, School Bus? Yeah. I, oh, I have not read a Magic School Bus book in so many years. That that, that franchise kind of disappeared. Um, I know. It was like very 90s. Yeah. Dude, 90s were awesome. Or the, the Bernstein beers. I love oh, that series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes. No, Absolutely. But that's, that's great advice. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me. This has been a great conversation. I certainly learned a lot. Thank you so much, Jane. Good luck. Thank you again to Stephen for coming on the show and thank you for tuning in. What did you think of this episode? Let me know by commenting on my latest post on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane and be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Hope you have a wonderful week and I'll talk to you next Tuesday.